I mean, I'm not, I'm definitely not going to claim that, you know, getting involved in your local community is going to necessarily affect gun violence. But just as someone who has been doing this work and someone who's on this show talking about this work, I think it's yeah. so valuable for if you want to help, um, just to be willing and able to have that dialogue with right. the communities that you want to help. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy necessarily to go into a community you don't know about, but if you go into it with the right mindset and make it clear that you don't want to impose your view and you generally want to learn from them mm -hmm. and not just, I guess, even quote-unquote help them, you want mm -hmm. to learn from them. Um, I think that's, that's a, an approach that can be used um, and that I've, always, that I've always approached my work with. That was Tia Yang, co-founder of Where's the Love Philadelphia, a community-based project to raise awareness around the gun violence crisis in Philadelphia and to share the stories of those affected. My name is Asanya Senaratna and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. I first heard of Where's the Love a few days into my time at the University of Pennsylvania and I was exploring the different student organisations on campus and Where's the Love was one that really stood out because it focused on bringing a new perspective and light to an issue which has always been a sensitive one and prevailing topic um, in the United States and often we'll hear a lot in the media about mass shootings but it's not often that you get to hear the perspective or stories of those affected by this issue on a daily basis. And what's more, these were students who were getting out of their own bubble and comfort zone and docu documenting these stories via photography and audio, which are unique mediums in their own right. So just a note before we get started though, there are a few references to Penn in this episode, so I apologize if you're not familiar with um, Penn or the Philadelphia community, but I think the broader themes and ideals that we talk about could be referenced um, to, to, the, to any community um, that experiences this issue or similar ones um, for that matter. So here's that chat with Tia um, where we discuss her experience getting out into the local community, breaking down stereotypes around gun violence, advocacy through photography work and solutions to gun violence crisis um, as Where the Love describes it. Enjoy. Hi, uh, my name is Tia Yang. I uh, just graduated from the University of Pennsylvania last spring and uh, I'm the, one of the co-founders of Where's the Love Philadelphia, which is a community-based project, um, a multimedia project that focuses on people who have been affected by gun violence in Philadelphia. Um, I guess that uh, our, our passion really is to be sort of a storytelling platform and to really tell the stories of people um, in the community um, and not kind of impose our own narrative on them. I guess one of our main uh, founding goals was to be sort of a unique project. There's a lot of advocacy projects on college campuses and a lot of projects where students will you know, take a certain stance or they'll have certain uh, maybe policy goals or maybe uh, fundraising goals or they'll volunteer. But our goal isn't just for Penn students to, to be able to uh, get out in the community, but to actually provide something valuable to the community itself. Yeah. So I often uh, will tell people, like, I don't ever call us a pen club. And sometimes I slip because our organization right, has right. been uh, kind of, you know, we recruit through SAC fairs, as you yeah, saw. Yeah. And we do, we're comprised mostly of pen students. In the past, we had some non-pen students. But 
Um, but I really hesitate to call us a club, and that's because we really, um, the goal of our organization is to help the community and help community members tell their stories. And uh, if you've seen our site, you can see that our stories are, we have a brief biographical write-up that we provide, and then after that, our stories are direct quotes, um, transcriptions of interviews that we do with community members, as well as audio clips from those interviews with them. So we really want to be a platform for the voices of the community, and our audience is like anyone who is in the Philadelphia community or interested in the Philadelphia community. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing. A lot of uh, clubs that are student-run will focus on kind of maybe raising awareness and getting students involved in these issues, but that's not necessarily our focus. That's definitely a byproduct. I mean, it's great if we get people from Penn more involved and more aware. That's definitely one of our kind of corollaries, but it's not the main goal. The main goal is really to help these people share their stories. Um, for example, one of the things that I'm most proud of, this may be moving a bit ahead, but yeah. one of our main collaborators is Ceasefire Philadelphia, yeah. and they're an organization that uh, is very community-based, and they work to uh, uh, address violence in the community. A lot of them are uh, former perpetrators, or they're people who maybe have lost loved ones, and they go out and they do... Um, they do rallies and they do violence interrupting, which is a really interesting strategy, which I can tell you more about later, right. um, where they actually go out into the community where there's hot spots of, of violence. Mm. And if there's a report of some incident happening, they actually go out there and, you know, they're guys who are from the neighborhood mm. and they know the people and they can actually kind of diffuse the tension. They can, you know, talk to the people and have them, you know, help with peaceful conflict resolution. Um, so anyway, one of our proudest moments is that they actually uh, use our site in their publicity and that when they present to, um, for example, like the DA's office, when they, when they present their work, they actually use our site because they felt that it accurately represented you know, their perspectives and what they do, which is really what our goal is, um, is to be a platform for them. So that's, uh, I guess that's what Where's the Love Philadelphia is, is all about. Where did it all get started? How did it get started? Uh, yeah, so I guess um, I've kind of called myself a co-founder. I have to give a big shout out to um, Diana or Wing So and uh, Daniel Curland, who were the two OG co-founders of this organization. Um, Daniel had, uh, Dan, had the big idea, which he started uh, talking to community members and sort of initially wanted to start a project having to do with gun violence. And... Uh, Wing or Diana was really passionate about um, kind of doing this through this artistic medium and she's an amazing photographer and graphic designer and she sort of together they had this great idea to present these stories in this way um, and then I kind of was the third on the team um, and I eventually became the I guess creative director and then leader for a, a couple years um, but anyway it all started with Dan sort of just talking to some community members. He was in a, an umbrella organization called Engage Philadelphia, mm. um, which was focused on community-based problem solving of any issues in the Philadelphia community. And he focused his, uh, his research on gun violence. And so he kind of did the initial outreach and initial uh, sort of uh, having the idea of creating a project that was based uh, based in the community and with the community, mm. but uh, run by some students. And, uh, and that, that was in 2014, I believe. And then 2015 to 16 uh, and 16 to 17, um, I was sort of leading the project. 
Um, and my background is sort of in uh, photojournalism. And so it was really a, a natural fit for me when I talked to Dan for the first time and heard about the project. I knew that it was something I was really passionate about. And I definitely, you know, I'm really proud that I was able to come on at that early stage um, and be able to kind of, you know, contribute both to our mission and our our graphics and our photography and our interviews and just to be able to be part of that project from the get-go was was really great. Awesome and I, I wanted to touch on because I've read this uh, in one of the articles Dan's kind of inspiration behind it was pretty interesting he ended up in a yeah, right. interesting situation to get to where he is could you tell us a little bit? Yeah sure so um, I'm not sure where this happened in his uh, formulation of this project yeah. actually because he kind of I think you know he sometimes would, you know, get really excited about it. So none of us is really clear how exactly it happened. But anyway, he was in the hospital for heat stroke, and he actually saw someone who had um, been shot, and he uh, just, it struck him how, and especially here at Penn, you know, we have the, this huge medical system, and the hospital is literally on campus. Mm -hmm. um, and so he just was struck by the fact that this was something that happened not only right there in the hospital room with him, but um, literally all around us. Um, right. One of the slides that we show at kind of our info session actually shows a map of crime in Philadelphia, and you can see Penn, and then all around Penn are these darker areas, and the darker the zone kind of represents higher levels of crime right. and violence. And so we really are surrounded by this, so I guess that was kind of him being in the hospital room next to someone who was shot was really a microcosm of all of us being here at Penn and being surrounded and not, you know, a lot of Penn students just don't really know about it. Um, mm. We recently interviewed a Penn student who's from West Philadelphia, and he was talking a lot about how there's this Penn bubble and how Penn students really don't know about it. Mm. And that's something that, you know, me and the other uh, members of the organization um, can definitely tell you about, but that's something that, you know, he has this unique perspective that really... Uh, kind of, you know, uh, reinforce what we, what our, what our goal was, which yeah. is, uh, what our goal, as I said, we kind of have our main goal, which is community-based, and then a corollary would definitely be kind of the people that are part of this organization, just us being able to be engaged and use our resources right. and our, uh, you know, our resources as Penn students to actually help this issue. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's the story behind Dan. I wanted to talk about the, the pen bubble. So coming to pen, um, it's quite distinct from Australia. So often your phone will go off and you'll get a text message with a, with a pen alert. It says robbery on 40th or, you know, aggravated violence on 36th, take caution. And it happens almost so much that you become numb to it. How can we burst the bubble and how do we combat people taking things for granted or becoming numb to what's happening around them? A lot of Penn students, it, it really shocks me that, you know, I meet freshmen at this point in the year, it's November, who still haven't been off campus, like even to Center City, which right. that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole nother level. I mean, it's one thing, I understand when students, you know, they have this preconception of West Philadelphia is dangerous, mm -hmm. and whenever I speak with them, obviously, I try to, you know, kind of fight back against that. But in addition, even just getting off Penn's campus, I think, is so important, not, not just for projects like this, but like on a really 
a basic level, being able to connect with people outside of uh, the community that you're a part of, which is Penn, which is a very specific community. Like, yes, Penn has a lot of diversity, and that's really great um, within our student body. But at the same time, we're all Penn students. We all have that in common. And I think it's really important for Penn students to be able to get out. And I think that there's something so valuable about it. I think we have a lot of um, our members who will join, and they don't really have experience with this and they're just really passionate about it. But even though they kind of express this, this desire to get off campus and to connect with the community, what really brings it home for them is when they first go to an interview and they talk to these people. Right. And, um, and they just realize this is a person that has a story to tell. And you know, they're not you know, this abstracted idea mm. of like, Oh, a person from a dangerous area isn't someone that I would want to talk to. Mm. Um, and we do talk to a lot of people who are, you know, activists within their community. So maybe they're the people who've been affected and now they're advocates against it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they're, they're just people. I know when, when, I got, when I got to Penn, people would be like, hey, like, you shouldn't go to West Philadelphia. There's a boundary zone. You shouldn't go outside of this area. And then... You get sessions by the Penn police and they're like, oh, we patrol this area and we think it's pretty safe and crime rates are low. I think there's two questions here. It's one, honestly, were you guys scared going into that? Because I know we all have kind of inbuilt stereotypes, preconceptions, and certainly statistically speaking, they're still, I guess, more dangerous statistically. And then second is, do you think we should kind of redefine that stereotype and how do we do it? Obviously, where's the love is doing it? In a, in, a, in a certain way. Don't think I've been really, uh, really nervous. Definitely not in West Philadelphia, where I've, I've worked since freshman year um, right, right, through right. both employment and volunteer uh, opportunities. Um, in North Philadelphia, where we do a lot of our work with ceasefire, um, there are some areas that are a little bit rough, and you might be walking down the street and someone might call out, and you know you kind of will feel like, oh, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here mm. but I think that uh, yes there's a lot of violence in the city but at the same time um, most of the violence is you know it's a, it's a community level issue and a lot of the people we talk to they talk about um, you know gun violence that was a result of a feud or something silly like some kids yeah. who were in a, in a fight over a girl or something right, like right, that right, right. Um, most of the most of the gun violence, definitely that we focus is, focus on for where's the love, is not necessarily like random violence. Like someone's walking down the street and they get shot, yeah. and that's I'm not saying that's not an issue. But as far as our specific focus, um, it's really on gun violence as a systemic, like neighborhood level, community level issue within the community, and that's the really big issue that we try to address. So I'm not saying that it's totally safe for people to be walking yeah. through these neighborhoods, but at the same time, the most important thing is to just be sensitive. I mean, you know that you're an outsider and you're not gonna go through and be obnoxious or yeah. do something that could offend someone, I don't know, blast music or yeah. you know, run around and go up to some random person who you don't know and ask them some question <laughs> or say anything offensive. I mean, we, yeah. go, into, we, we go into these communities um, oftentimes with someone who we have already connected with yeah. um, or if we're just taking photos in the area. You know, it's an area that, um, we've talked about with the person that we've interviewed 
or it's an area that's not too far away from maybe a place that we met with them. And, you know, as long as you're really conscious of where you are and what you're doing, and if there are people around that, that are giving you strange looks, you just, you know, be aware of that. And maybe then you try to get out of there. But I really, I personally think that we get these pen alerts for someone being shot at like 38th Street. You know, it happens like random violence like that can happen. And the chances yeah. of you being affected by that violence, really, as long as you're being conscientious, I don't think that, I think it's a different thing between the random instances of violence and like you actually being a victim of intentional violence. And as long as you're aware of your surroundings and not acting stupid, um, I really just, I don't think it's something that should keep you from exploring new places or trying to get out into the community. As far as redefining the stereotype of West Philadelphia um, among Penn students, I think that going into the community and experiencing something that's very different than what you're used to doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or dangerous. I don't think you necessarily need to correlate you know, higher rates of crime and the fact that these communities are dangerous with you know, an imminent danger to you anytime you go into these neighborhoods. Um, you mentioned the whole outsider uh, perspective, being cognizant of the fact that you're going into a community that you know, you're not from. I mean, we're, we're all part of the wider Philadelphia community, but we, we've grown up in different places. So I'm just, yeah, I'm interested, how does that, how does that play out? So how, when you're, I think specifically in terms of photojournalism, how do you maintain the respect for the community that you're going into but also capturing moments and stories which are true to that community. So because I feel like to capture the true stories, you have to be embedded in a certain sense, um, or you're just merely presenting an outsider's perspective. Mm, yeah, that's a, a really big, um, I guess, <laughs> uh, that's a really big question yeah. and a really important question to any, anyone who's trying to you know, share um, the perspective of someone who is not you. Um, so I guess that uh, I mentioned earlier that the the major body of the stories that we post on our sites are direct quotes. But as far as like actually connecting with the people and how do we even set up these interviews, I think that the most important thing is you know you don't you obviously don't go into it and act as if you're part of the community. You are an outsider, and they know you're an outsider when you when you approach them to do an interview but at the same time if you show them that you're genuinely interested in telling their story and and um, hearing about their experiences you know they'll open up to you and I think that obviously there's a balance you can't uh, you know we're not like ethnographers we don't embed ourselves in the life of this person and we just can't do that I mean <laughs> whether whether we would do that if we had the capacity is a whole nother question but you know, we are more like journalists and journalism works in that you get an assignment, you go and report on it, and depending on your assignment, maybe you're gonna be more embedded in it. But um, that is part of the reason that we chose to do our stories in the format that they are, in that they're mostly direct quotes, because we don't have the time to go and, you know, spend days and days with a person and make sure that we know exactly where they're coming from, but we do think that you know, if we kind of are aware ourselves of 
the, the community and, you know, we do a little bit of research, we do a little bit of background and we, you know, are just actively aware of the conditions that we're going into, then we have enough background to kind of help guide their interview and, you know, prompt them to tell their story and make sure that it's represented in a way that they think is accurate. And obviously, if we have any questions or we don't understand something that they've said, we just have to ask. And that's something that I think is a really big thing. Uh, as far as breaking the pen bubble, this is a really big thing that I would definitely say. And also just stereotypes in general. I think it's really important to not be afraid to ask because if you ask someone something, it doesn't show that you're ignorant. Well, it might show that you're <laughs> ignorant, but not in a bad way. It shows right. that you're not aware of something, but you want to be aware of something. Right. So if you, you know, talk to someone and it seems like, oh, they're so different and, you know, they're talking about things, I don't, I don't even know what they are. And that, that is a real thing. Even someone who's from, say, Philadelphia might not understand, you know, the words used by someone who yeah, lives in yeah. a different part of Philadelphia. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, you've been here a while. You probably have heard, like, John. Like, no one will know what that is <laughs> if you're not from Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, things like that, like young bulls is a thing that people will say, which kind of just refers to like a younger guy um, and like older people, like old heads. If someone says you're an old head, it means, you know, and like I'm probably like screwing it up right now. But that's something that, you know, I would I would ask, like if they said something like that and you don't know what it means, you don't just ignore it. And because that sort of builds more kind of uh, a level of distance if you right. let it go and you don't ask and you don't clarify. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really important for anyone who's trying to do this kind of work to make sure that, not that they know everything, but that when they are presented with opportunities to learn, that they do. And mm -hmm. I think that the people we work with, you know, they, they can tell if you're genuinely interested in, in learning and in representing things correctly, or if you're just going in there and trying to, you know, write down a story and, and get it down and, and get out of there and not really understand it. Yeah. Um, so obviously they don't, they don't expect and we don't expect for us to be an expert on what it's like to be a member of the community, right. but we expect and we hope they expect that we will do our best efforts to kind of understand to the, to the point that we can represent them. Right. and to present these ideas in a way that, you know, is in good faith. How do you, how do you see, yeah, where, what, what role does storytelling play in making impactful work? And, yeah, like, where does this, where, where do you guys sit in the landscape and do you think that has to change? Like, should there be a, a source of funding for organisations to report more on on issues that need awareness or is that something that should be donor driven like investigative journalism increasingly there's players who say give to me almost in a philanthropic way because we need to tell these stories and we need someone to pay for them yeah that's a really big question but i'm just curious yeah that's a question that i've thought about a lot um as someone who's worked in journalism before right, right. um i definitely am a big believer that um and I don't, I don't know the solution, kind of like you said, like how do we get more funding to reporting and actually you know, getting the information to the public? Because, I mean, we hear all these cliches about how we're like living in a factless age and all that. And obviously that's a little bit extreme, but um, it's definitely true. Like how do we disseminate things like this? 
As far as the role of Where's the Love, Philadelphia, and, and projects like this, I think that we definitely, uh, I mean, we're separate. Obviously, we're not the New York Times because right. we would have a lot more funding if we were the yeah, New York yeah, Times. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Donald Trump would attack us, which would be great publicity. <laughs> um, but uh, Donald Trump, if you want to attack us, please do. <laughs> um, no, but I think that uh, projects like this, um, we hope they sort of strike a chord with people and the people will share them. Um, the people will find them and be interested in them and want to learn more. So I guess one thing, one example of there not being enough funding to just get information to the public is this project that was called Gun Crisis Reporting, um, run by a journalist called Jim McMillan. And he just ran this site, um, which was guncrisis.org, that really just reported on every single instance of gun violence in Philly. And did a lot of interesting projects around that, but the, the main point was just making sure that this was something that everyone could be aware of. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, I'm not sure how long ago, a couple years ago he shut down, right around the time that you know we were really picking up. And we were actually lucky enough to be uh, uh, in an article where he was quoted um, complimenting our work, which is a great honor, um, because he really devoted so much time to this project. And he just didn't have the time or the funding to do it, you know, as, a, as an independent person. And I'm sure he had a team helping him out. Um, but so one of our goals as a volunteer organization of Penn students who do, in theory, have this time to devote to this sort mm -hmm. of cause is mm -hmm. to be able to get the information out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really, our social media threads, we really try to get as much news on there as possible. We don't always... Uh, have the capacity to do that. We definitely don't do it as well as gun crisis did, but that's definitely something that happened early on in our organization that for me really crystallized something where we could be tangibly useful. Um, just literally getting the news out there. So I guess we should move on to what uh, Where's the Love really focuses on, which is gun violence and how that affects the, the community within Philadelphia. And I know as an Australian and as the team was um, preparing the questions for this interview, it seems so kind of foreign, this, this concept of gun violence for us. Coming from a country with like strict gun laws, there's nothing in the case of like open carry or anything like that. And quite frankly, like we don't have many gun crimes that occur or, or acts of violence and, and this, this is not to put Australians or any other nation with like strict gun reform laws on a pedestal but it is honestly sometimes I'm speaking from my personal experience and that of other Australians is that it can be unbelievable to come to the US and see what's happening and I know or at least I think that this is mu a much more complex problem it's not simply a thing of like okay we enact the laws and we sold everything so we have, we have a bunch of questions here I think we want to explore, but I think to open it up, it would be interesting to hear what you kind of learnt about the issue whilst working on the project. Yeah, so I guess to start off with as sort of a, I guess a disclaimer, we don't focus, we've like always made sure not to focus on gun policy necessarily. Sure, That's not to sure. say that I, as a political science major, it's something that I studied a lot personally, right. yeah. and I know a lot of us, you know, obviously have opinions and interests yeah, in this. Yeah. But 
Um, our focus really is on the community and how gun violence has affected the community. So um, I guess I would start off with speaking to that. Um, yeah. I guess the first thing I'll say is I, I don't want to spoil anything on our site because like I have <laughs> just mentioned, yeah, yeah. like I just mentioned, the, the best way to hear this is from people who have right. lived it. And yeah. there are so many stories on here that you'll read and it's just a totally new perspective yeah. um, for someone, even even someone who's approaching this from an academic lens. Like I said, I'm a political science major right. and I've done a lot of research on like gun control and gun policy, yeah. Yeah. but how the gun violence epidemic really affects people on an everyday basis is really something that is not as much in the literature and is not as much something that you would encounter. Mm. Um, so... What we really focus on, and I really think that we offer something that is kind of unique in the sense that the the dialogue around gun violence, I guess I should say, is not even about gun violence. It's about mm. gun control, and it's really limited to, or not limited to, but it's really focused heavily around ideas like police brutality and mass shootings, which are kind of two things that are really easy to encapsulate in something that's, you know, graphic and quick can be put into a hashtag, can be shared on social media. Um, I know that this really crystallized for me last year when I was working in D.C., and it was right around the time of the Orlando shooting, which uh, there's since been a bigger one, but at the time was the largest mass shooting in all of history. And it really catapulted gun control to the absolute forefront of the legislative agenda for Democrats in the states. And... uh, that sort of was interesting to me because as someone who cares a lot about gun violence and its effect mm. on the country, I was glad. But at the same time, this dialogue was really focused specifically on mass shootings. And mass shootings have been a framing that have allowed a lot of Democrats who, for example, have been a little bit more moderate to yeah. jump on the ship because mass shootings are something that affect everyone. Right. Um the quintessential example is the shooting in Sandy Hook in an area mm-hmm. where these were children who were being shot. These were children from a, a neighborhood that you don't think of when you think of like mass violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that's something that I think a lot of lawmakers have really focused on mm-hmm. um, is victims of mass shootings. And then on the other side of the coin, there's this whole uh, police brutality kind of um, like Black Lives Matter movement that's very radical and it is focused on the black community or the community that is the most statistically affected by gun violence. But at the same time, um, there's been a lot of articles that have been written about how this movement sort of doesn't focus on the more complex and often more politically complicated and politically fraught issues of poverty and the education system, the criminal justice system, residential segregation, um, drug culture, like there's all these really complex factors that to understand you need to um, really take a public health approach, really look at the community and not just look at gun control laws. It goes way beyond that. And so I think that when I was in D.C., I, what I was saying about how my time there really crystallized this was that I was I was actually covering Congress at the time, and so I saw this really you know passionate mobilization around gun control yeah. focused around mass shootings. And then I was actually at this um, 
this rally that they hosted at the Capitol. And it was all these people from all across the country who were, you know, activists um, for stricter gun control laws. And they were trying to pass a certain subset of laws, which generally had some problems of their own. But that aside, um, there's all these activists from all over the country. I was just asking people, you know, where are you from and just talking to them. And it was really interesting. And then what was fascinating to me was we heard these uh, megaphones from behind us. And all of a sudden, this group of Black Lives Matter um, activists marches in. Um, Some of them had their fists held high, and they were chanting. And they were coming in a straight line at first. They were in in a pretty big group of them. And they just cut through the crowd straight to the front. And everyone was kind of looking around like, what is going on? And you could sense this bit of a tension, not necessarily a tension between the groups as in there was antagonism, but a tension because these are different demographics of activists. And after they came in and they, you know, made their march into like straight to the front, they then joined the crowd and it wasn't, there wasn't, like I said, there wasn't a tension between the two groups, but really it, it crystallized for me this whole idea of the two main narratives around gun control that are used. And they're really easy to use, like I said, um, there was that slew of videos that occurred where you could literally see shootings. There was one that was live streamed and that just affected so many people. You see that and you think, wow, this is such an intense issue and I should give it my attention. And at the same time, mass shooting is something, you know, you hear about X many people died, that hits you, but... um, but really, I, I don't know. I th- actually, I think I have it here. That's why I have my computer pulled up. Um, according to CDC data uh, published by 538, less than 2% of, um, of shootings or of, of gun homicides are mass shootings. And around 3%, I think, are um, police shootings. Mm-hmm. So those make up such a small percentage of the yeah, gun violence yeah. that really is plaguing the country. Um, yeah. I, I'll also throw in the note that suicides make up a really large percentage of, I think it's actually the majority are suicides okay. of gun deaths, but among gun, gun homicides, those, uh, those two demographics are really very low. Yeah. And one thing that people don't focus on is gun violence is a systemic issue and an epidemic. Um, so to kind of tie that to what Where's the Love does, we really are looking at these issues, and a lot of our interviews, um, we go into them saying, you know, we're trying to learn more about gun violence, but we end up talking about so many different issues. Right, um, right. We have talked to some people who their entire interview, they really focus on drug culture and how that's mm-hmm. tied to gun violence and how there's this cycle of people who need money, end up you know, selling drugs, end up in jail, they end up involved in gun violence, not because of any any decision that they made to get involved, um, but because of this, this cycle of poverty and drug culture and just the opportunities that are available to people um, from some communities. And there are other people we've interviewed, for example, people who have worked a lot with um, youth and talk about education and just the opportunities that are afforded to youth and how the education system plays into this. Um, I mentioned previously we've done some school collaborations and it is an issue that kids think about even if they're not directly involved. Um, When you ask a student in a school, you know, in that context, 
tell me about, you know, what you think about gun violence, they'll say, well, I mean, kids aren't coming to school, our schools mm -hmm. are crappy, and people don't want to come in, mm -hmm. and so they're ending up on the streets. Or, you know, there's nothing for us to do after school, or students feel pressured to get involved in um, activities where they can make some money, mm -hmm. and a lot of times it's, you know, we feel pressured to support our families, we need to make some money. Um, so there's a lot of different issues that we we talk about with the people that we interview that you just don't think about. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of a lot of gun violence is caused by petty feuds. You know, people fighting yeah. over like you know you stole my girl or yeah. um, you dissed me the other day, and it's yeah. really it's really an issue, and that comes down to so many other issues like just simply access to guns. Yeah. or media, just the culture around guns, um, the culture around machismo instead of conflict resolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's just so many intertwined issues that go yeah. into gun violence that I think the media does not pick up on yeah. um, because it's not something that you can put into a hashtag or share right. in a video. Mm. Um, mm. But it's a, it's a daily reality for so many people. Mm. So... So you mentioned like stuff like petty feuds. Is that a does that come down to access to guns though? If if you were to remove access to guns, if stricter gun laws were implemented, would that what kind of change do you think that would make? Yeah, I mean, I I guess that when you say these are big questions, yeah. um, these are questions that we <laughs> often there are there are questions yeah. we often ask in our interviews. Um, uh, probably not the well. If someone talks about education, for example, yeah. you know, we might ask, or the one that we do often ask is what people think about limiting gun access, because that right. is something that really has not been done much in the States, yeah. so no one really knows what would happen. I, I think a lot of people answer that um, people will find other ways to get guns, right. or um, or some people do genuinely think yeah, the ease of pulling the trigger and having that firearm on you mm. is the issue. Like, yeah. people would not resort to knifing each other if there weren't right. guns available. There's something about the ease of access and the culture around guns that does change things. Um, and I think that resonates, but at the same time, like you've hinted at and like I've been talking about, there's so many different issues and uh, the conclusion is that America has a lot of problems. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as far as reforming things like yeah. um, like education or I guess one, one perspective that I, kind of, I think we kind of come back to a lot through this project is the public health perspective right. and looking at gun violence as a public health crisis and an mm. epidemic. Um, and that itself is something that people have different perspectives on. For example, I just read an article by a professor here at Penn um, about how gun violence is not, um, is not contagious. And what he means by that is that it is an epidemic. It's widespread. It's affecting so many people. And it's, um, it's something that we need to address like we would an epidemic as in a disease outbreak. But it's not contagious in the sense that the solutions in in a lot of cases need to be localized. Okay. Um, yeah. So as far as how gun access um, affects this, it could depend on the location. Um, I, I think that really does resonate with what we're trying to do, that finding that it's not contagious and that we are 
very specifically focused on Philly, and mm. I know that the issues elsewhere are different. I like, for example, um, one of our interviews was with a guy who specifically spoke to the the dynamic between uh, West Philly, Northwest and Southwest Philly, right. and how there's there's two like p- portions of West Philly and they feud with each other and right, it's right. north of the L and south of the L right. are um, totally different and if you're yeah. from one of those sides you're supposed to have a feud with someone from the other side yeah. so that for example is something that is Philly specific and his proposed solution to that was not only Philly specific but like that community specific like his proposed solution would be we need to have the older members of the community really talk to the younger members of the community. And um, it has to be a within-community solution. This doesn't have to do with the government changing gun laws. It doesn't right. have to do with, yeah. like, policymakers making policy. It has to do with change within the community. Um, and that's not to say that I don't think we should change our gun policy, because I, I do, I really do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I guess one one policy I would point to that's not necessarily gun control as we often think of it is, um, as I mentioned, the public health sort of approach and the fact that there actually um, there are laws in effect that effectively bar the CDC from conducting research um, that I think the exact language is like it can't be used to advocate or promote gun control. Um, okay. and the, the Center for Disease Control. Okay. Okay. Um, so again, with the health focus, right. that's something that is absurd because <laughs> you're not allowed to research, you're basically not allowed to research the health effects of gun violence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. anything that you know would paint a damning picture of how much gun violence there is could mm-hmm. be said to advocate for gun control. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I know President Obama called out Congress for, um, for not striking down that, mm-hmm. that law. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I would say overall, it's, it's really important for not only our project and people who are studying Philadelphia or our project, but I think that in an ideal world, our project could serve as sort of an idea for how not just gun violence, but these different types of social issues should be approached. And I'm not saying through a photojournalism project that does exactly what we do, but I'm just saying through the approach of actually thinking about the different interrelated factors Mm. and how they affect each other. And obviously that is not an easy solution. Um, With Going back to this idea of mass shootings are easy to rally around mm. because mass shootings, you, you can look at what kind of gun was used. You can look at who was the person who was shooting. Maybe they had a history of mental health issues. Mm. And so after that, you want to pass a law about not like banning this type of weapon or mm. banning access for people with this kind of criminal history. Mm. And that seems like, look, we're directly addressing the problem. But the reality is if you want to fix gun violence, there's not one way to address the problem because there's a lot of problems that go into it. If we're, so if, if the solution is internally driven, what can people do externally to, to help that process? If, if we kind of assume the situation here, if we take the current gun laws as given, we're not able to do, like just hypothetically, we're not able to do anything about restricting access. 
and we want to focus more on the underlying issues. For that internal change, does yeah, how, how can people on the outside help? I would say what I was mentioning about kind of the approach that we take, um, universities specifically can really support this kind of work that is community-based research. It's research, but it's community-based. It's that right, simple right. way. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, no, it's really not simple at all. But uh, I think that there just isn't enough of a focus on learning about things at a local level, learning yeah. about things from the people who have directly been affected. And yeah. I'm not an academic. I don't I don't know what the you know correct way to go about sure. doing this and, and increasing this type of work is, but that would just be from my personal experience, something that um, I wish there was more of. And as someone who is a political science major, like I said, this isn't something that I have seen in my research on policy. Right. Um, so I would say, just from my perspective as a Penn student or affiliate, that's one thing I would like to see on like a research level. Yeah, um, yeah. And like I mentioned, there are there is a startling lack of research on gun violence, gun control, and everything related because of um, the NRA mainly. <laughs> but uh, as far as other things, um, I mean, I'm not. I'm definitely not going to claim that you know, getting involved in your local community is going to necessarily affect gun violence. But just as someone who has been doing this work and someone who's on this show talking about this work, I think it's yeah. so valuable for if you want to help, um, just to be willing and able to have that dialogue with right. the communities that you want to help. Mm. Um, it's not easy necessarily to go into community you don't know about, but if you go into it with the right mindset and make it clear that you don't want to impose your view and you generally want to learn from them mm. and not just, I guess, even quote-unquote help them, you want to learn from them. Um, I think that's, that's a, an approach that can be used um, and that I've, always, that I've always approached my work with. Just on a side note, just thinking, is there anything that you think larger media organisations can do in terms of how they're reporting the issue? Yeah, as far as news organisations, um, investigative and long-form journalism, um, people don't seem to have the attention span for it anymore, um, but it's still being done. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The Shout-out to the place I used to work now, but the Inquirer, <laughs> the Inquirer though, really... Um, has uh, the Inquirer has not only an investigative team, but an enterprise desk which focuses specifically on long-form journalism. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily investigative in the classical sense, but it's you know really deep uh, journalism, the kind that maybe you would hear. Uh, something that comes to mind actually is podcasts, which have been doing yeah, a really yeah. good job of this yeah. because people do have the attention span to put in their headphones and yeah. listen to a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But some of the work in uh, in podcasts is so thorough. Um, I'm thinking of the um, This American Life coverage of the refugee crisis, wow. where they actually went to the refugee camps. I, that's amazing, yeah. and that's the kind of work that I would love to see more of, and yeah. I would love to see people, you know, demand because yeah. media organizations are businesses, and yeah. they're they're gonna do what people are clicking on, what they're reading, and. Um, yeah, so as far as 
what media organizations can do as uh, in addressing the issue of gun violence and related issues. Um, yeah, I think that it's because they're businesses, they can't change that. They have to be businesses. They have to make money. It's up to us to actually read the stuff and demand the stuff yeah, and yeah. want to learn more. <laughs> could you maybe try, uh, this is a big uh, question to ask, but could you try and explain kind of the, the barriers for gun reform on a political sense? Explain the NRA to a, an Australian. That's a, pretty, that's <laughs> or, or a, that's a tall order. Um, yeah, no, I know. And it's something that's crazy because the NRA is this massive bogeyman we have in the States that terrorizes any lawmaker who threatens to potentially limit gun control or gun access in any way, shape, or form at all. Right. Um, again, I, I don't mind you sharing my opinions, but yeah, I'd sure. like to emphasize that um, where's the love as an organization? We never hold any sure. political, sure. official political stances. Yeah, um, yeah. But as far as what the NRA is and why it's such a barrier to gun control... Um, I guess you have to first understand lobbying in yeah. the United States. Uh, the NRA is one of the most powerful lobbies in the United States, which just means that a lot of Americans throw money at it to prevent um, gun control from being passed. Um, right. And I, the, the NRA being the, the National Rifle, Rifle Association. Um, and I guess the... So once that, so yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah, yeah. One statistic that everyone always always cites is, you know, look at how high the public opinion is for X Y Z legislation. Right. Everyone wants to pass this law, but what's actually interesting is you, if you look at polls that are asking more broad questions like, do you support um, stricter gun control or something like that, yeah. the percentage actually stays a, a lot more. Um, closer to, to median um, okay. because Americans really value their individual freedoms and one of those is the right to bear arms. Right. Um, right. And whether that actually meant the right of individuals to bear arms is actually up for debate, but yeah. that aside, yeah. it's something that people are really protective of and part of that is not just um, you know people being afraid of whatever the specific bill affects, but one thing that the NRA really focuses on is how, you know, each bill could have a slippery slope effect. And one day they're limiting, you know, gun access for people with this kind of criminal record. And the next day they're limiting gun access for everyone. And yeah, right. um, yeah. it, that's that's one of the things that, you know, it is, it's really easy to see these public <laughs> opinion polls yeah. and think, how can they not pass this? Yeah. You know, how can they not defect when they see that, you know, 80% or whatever of their constituents want mm -hmm. them to pass the law. Yeah. But the reality is that when you're facing arguments that are a lot more um, far-reaching or arguments that the legislation is a lot more far-reaching, those do hold sway. Yeah. And because it's such a well-funded and well-organized lobby, um, yeah. they just are facing down the Democrats or the Republicans who actually do want to pass reform yeah. at every at every turn. Um, another thing that's really interesting is that I believe every um, every law affecting gun policy since I don't know the date, but definitely throughout Obama's term, um, mm. every single one that was passed was 
approved by the NRA. Um, nothing that the NRA has opposed has passed wow. in recent history. Um, and they do, they do support you know, certain, certain measures. It's not like they, anything that will limit gun access in any way they oppose. They right, do support yeah. some, yeah. some yeah. measures and those have passed, but yeah. anything that they don't support is not going to pass. Yeah. Um, okay. And now that you know the Republicans have the majority in both houses, and Donald Trump is president, it just the the odds just go down. Right. Yeah. That's about it because I'm conscious of not making this entirely into a political podcast. Is there anything else you you wanted to mention or write? Um, plug. We just decided to make a book. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, go for it. This literally just materialized last week, but. Oh, sorry, uh, I'm super excited about it. We're going to make um, our existing material into a book in awesome. published form. Uh, we had a moment where, for some reason in our minds, we were thinking, like, oh, nine stories, because we kind of, I don't even know where that number came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we realized, like, oh, crap, we're looking at 19 stories to put into a book. That's going to be, like, a 200-page-long book. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it, it's something that we've been tossing around for a long time, and... Cool. So, yeah, no, nothing specific. I just wanted yeah, to yeah, no plug. Um, <laughs> yeah, personal kind of... Uh, coming, coming from me personally, request, message, whatever you want to say. If, if you're listening to this, please do check out the website of Where's the Love. The story's really insightful. They're moving, really well put together. If you prefer audio, if you prefer just looking at images, you can read the text blurbs. It's in different forms to whatever way you like to... Um, consume content but even if you just spend five minutes having a browse I would highly recommend it really is cool to to hear um, someone's story in their own voice and it's some great work you should check out is there any other ways we can um, support what you guys are doing there's a book but yeah. other than that yeah I mean just check our site out and you know you never know where it's going to lead we've had some people reach out from like a professor for example who just found it and uses it in her class um, as an example of yeah. like documentary photography. Um, we've been reached out to by different people who have different ideas and like we always want to hear you know what your thoughts are but overall um, you know just check it out um, when we do have this book buy it I don't know how long that's going to take us but yeah. we're hoping to get it get it done in the next uh, within this next semester um, but if, yeah. if any of you knows how to publish a book, <laughs> let me know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. No, this, right. uh, this is a really cool podcast, and I really I think that it gave me an opportunity to reflect on this project and what it's meant to me. And, uh, you know, when you, when you talked about what the podcast was, kind of showing how younger people can make a difference, yeah. Yeah. it's not something I ever really thought about, like, oh, I'm a young person making a difference. But... Yeah. Um, and I, I sort of thought, I don't know how people could learn from my model because it's just me doing yeah. my specific project here yeah. in Philly on this specific topic. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it really made me think, so I really appreciate it. Awesome. No worries. Thanks so much, Tia. Thank you so much for listening to our fifth episode of Lantern. That, again, was Tia Yang. You can find more information on Where's the Love Philadelphia and their mission to raise awareness around gun violence in Philadelphia to share the stories uh, of those affected in the show notes as well as the articles, research and other resources uh, that Tia mentioned. 
you did enjoy the show, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us grow and share these amazing conversations with more and more uh, people across the globe. If you can't wait for more, episode six will be live across all our platforms uh, in two weeks' time on Sunday. That's on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up to date um, with the latest content we're pushing out across our social media. So that's Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter, which are all under Project Lantern underscore. So that's one word, Project Lantern underscore. And of course, on our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us at all or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at any time on our social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. Again, we're so happy to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth-led social impact. Till next time, stay awesome.